This is Cat's Corner, the podcast, and I'm your host, Rissy Cat Okidei. In this episode, I'm going to take you through what seems like an unlikely trio, but at the end makes a lot of sense. Welcome to my world. Let's get started. Greetings, 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 good people, and welcome to another edition of Cat's Corner. I'm your host, Rissy Cat Okidei, and... This is episode two. Uh, first of all, thank you to the 20-something number of y'all that listened. I appreciate y'all. I really do. I'm really excited. I'm definitely not pushing this as hard as I will be, but I really wanted to get started. And what I have found with myself is that the ideas come when they come and that uh, it's better to just get them down uh, versus trying to plan everything out so that they roll out the right way. So um, yeah, I'm just going to keep recording and at some point I'll figure out (laughs) the marketing piece. But in the meantime, I'm really excited um, about this episode, partly because it's not the episode that I planned. I had in mind to do part one of a two-part podcast episode around uh, this event that I produced called uh, Let's Hear It From The Boys, Black Masculinity in the Age of Me Too. And the the resulting sort of energy behind putting it together, sort of the pre stuff that happens, and then sort of coming back to sort of share my thoughts after the event had happened, were the initial, uh, that was the initial goal. And I had it all planned out. I knew exactly how I was going to talk about it. And then I got in the car. So for those who don't know, I am a huge fan of NPR. I love Joshua Johnson and 1A. Um, I'm a huge fan of Terry Gross and Fresh Air. I love Kojo. Like I listen to NPR all the time. Like it's, it's always, that's, you know, even the, the, the pumpkins know, like when you get into Antiracy's car, it's going to be NPR. Uh, I like the fact that I can catch up and be informed on the way to and from places. And so I had already done the event and there was, no, I hadn't done the event yet. But the Steve Harvey and Monique conversation that happened on his show, you know, I try to check the breaking news at the beginning of the day so I at least know that the world hasn't blown up. And I took a look at some of the excerpts. I'd been on Twitter and I was particularly concerned with the clips that I saw because it just felt like he was talking over her. So I was like, okay, mental note, you're going to go back and watch everything. And my intention wasn't initially to comment on it because, you know, there's a lot of popular culture folks who do a really good job of commenting on these types of exchanges. But that happened. And then when I get in the car, I happened to turn on, it was one of those days where I was leaving a little later in the day for one of my evening classes. And I happened to turn on at the time the daily is on. It's sort of like the New York Times daily podcast with Michael Barbaro. I think that's his name. And he it was a, I, I'd come in in the middle of the clip, but based on the information that was happening, there was someone who was clearly reading uh, someone's essay. And because I'm such a fan of this woman, I knew immediately that whatever this is, this was about Ida B. Wells Barnett. And again, anybody who knows me knows that when it comes to Freedom Fighters and Black women, Ida B. Wells Barnett is one of the most important figures to me in uh, American history, in Black history. You know, she's just, she's, she's, she's everything. Partly because what she decides to undertake as a Black woman 
living in the South uh, at the turn of the century is important work. Uh, for those that don't know her, she uh, was a suffragette. She was a an activist. She, I think, is really, in my opinion, the great-grandmother of investigative journalism because she decided uh, she was seeing these, you know, post-emancipation, Jim Crow South, she was seeing all of these things that were happening where black people were constantly being made to fear, you know, white anger um, in the form of lynching. And what she found is that oftentimes when these lynchings happened, what you would inevitably find is that there was very little done to either find out what happened to these folks or to bring the people responsible for justice. And so she had already started uh, a career as a newspaper writer. And she, uh, so in just background, in college, I discovered her. And like the, I read her autobiography. I read The Red Record. I was just engrossed in terms of who she was. So she wrote under the pen name Iola. And one of the things that she was uh, noted for was the ease with which she wrote. She wrote in very clear, plain language. And, you know, when we think about the turn of the century and what the transatlantic slave trade does, particularly to black people in America, and I'm sure all over, is that there are laws in place that prevent you from teaching enslaved people how to read. So she uh, is coming, she's existing at a time where black people are removed from, you know, slavery in terms of emancipation has happened, you know, reconstruction has happened, we're moving into, you know, but we're dealing with Jim Crow and the Jim Crow system of systematic domestic terrorism against black people was the the order of the day. And so she chronicles, she starts chronicling all of these deaths. People are just, you know, being dragged out of their homes. Why are they being dragged out of their homes? What's going on? These accusations that are flying, you know, you go to the sheriff to find out what happened. The sheriff's like, I don't know what you're talking about. When the person, um, when their death certificate is signed, it's, you know, um, death unknown or suicide, but it's like, no, somebody took this person out of their house at two o'clock in the morning, accused them of something. And, uh, they ended up at the, you know, from the, from hanging from a tree. So she actually, um, has, you know, she's, she has a newspaper and she's doing her thing. And unfortunately, one of her really good friends is lynched. And one of the things that we learn, uh, what you learn in her autobiography is that it is believed that the reason this man was lynched was over a fight between two kids. When I read it, what I read was that there was, uh, I think the, her friend, I think his child got into a fight with a young white child. And I guess, you know, the little white boy went to complain to his father, comes over to her friend and says, you know, demands that, that there be an apology. And, you know, your boy's like, nope, because they're kids. Like, we're not, we're not doing this. And so, unfortunately, he ends up dead the next night. Like, they find out, they find his body by a railroad. And I believe in this case, um, it was a very gruesome find. And so she is heartbroken, of course, and devastated by the loss of her friend and decides to investigate it. She'd already had a history and a practice of investigating these murders. Um, but when it was her friend, it became a deeply personal issue. And this, you know, triggers um, a lifelong activism around lynching. And she is literally the a one-woman anti-lynching movement. And so my love for her has always, is, is, was sparked, you know, in college, because I just felt like, wow, what a 
I get the personal connection, but then there's this braveness of what you're doing because she is run out of the South. She, I think she was in Tennessee and she basically, you know, her newspaper was um, firebombed and burnt down. She, luckily, she wasn't there. Uh, had she been there, I think she would have died and that would have been it. We wouldn't have heard much more about her. Um, and she is basically told, if you ever come back, we will kill you. So she's run out of the South. Um, and this is a woman who is not afraid to, you know, to push back. So one of the descriptors that you often see associated with Ida B. Wells Barnett is fiery. She was considered a fiery woman. And this fire is what kind of kept her coming and going. So she would, she ends up um, in the North and then she would go back down South to collect information. And she knew that one she was going to have to prove without a doubt that what was happening in the lynching space was actually happening. So it was important to capture first person narrative. It was also important to start keeping track statistically of what was going on. And it was also important to make sure that there was a sense of the why, like what were the reasons given for either how these people died or why these people died. And just to be clear, lynching is not simply about the way in which someone's killed. So while people associate lynching specifically with noose, with you know, with the noose, lynching is mob violence without due process. So whether you know you are killed because they hang you from a tree, or whether they wrap your body, attach it to you know a car radiator, and throw you in a swamp like they did the young Emmett Till, a lynching is really it's not about the way that you are murdered. It's the fact that you are accused of something. A group of people come in, they snatch you out. There's no, there's no formal, you know, accusation. There's no trial. There's no jury. There's no opportunity to defend yourself. It's mob violence. So with that in mind, you know, she wants to understand. Um, she wants to not understand. She knows what's going on, but she wants to make sure that this is being recorded, that people understand that this is happening because, you know, North may have meant free for some when enslavement um, happens in this country, but it doesn't mean equal. This is something I teach my students. Like we should never make the mistake of thinking that getting North meant that somehow all of a sudden you would be human. So while there are plenty of Northern so-called liberals and abolitionists who are against slavery, um, there are also those same people, a lot of them necess didn't necessarily think that black people were on their level. So there are all of these things happening and she's choosing to be this light you know, she's choosing to be the person that takes on this fight. And because of that, she, you know, she, she sacrifices a great deal. Um, so this, this, and in the context of, of what I was listening to, uh, there's this program where they essentially look at people who, you know, when they die, there's no obituary for them. Given what she had contributed to the conversation around race relations in this country, around civil rights, when she died, there should have been an obituary written. As a public figure, she should have gotten an obituary. And she didn't. And so the story that I had entered upon sitting in my car on the way to school was like the tail end of this conversation where um, the reporter was, who's doing this research was talking about all of her accomplishments, including the fact that she was one of the original founding members of what would become the NAACP. She was also a suffragette. 
but she also understood white folks. And so she was like, we're not going to sit up here and waste time with white women and their nonsense. She was an active starter of black women club movements. And uh, black women's clubs were a way for black women to galvanize around issues that were important to them. So we must remember that those early suffragettes were white women who were very, who were privileged in a lot of ways, not just with race, but class as well. So oftentimes, you know, even poor white women weren't part of their understanding. And so when free black women in particular would go to these um, club meetings, they would be like, hey, we got to talk about slavery. Hey, we got to talk about racism. Hey, we got to talk about what's happening to black people. And they weren't welcome. Their, their issues were kind of overlooked. They were marginalized. And so you have in, at the turn of the century, these huge movements across the country of black women who are organizing. And it's, there's a whole history around black women club movements. And so um, she's a progenitor of that. She's one of the people that actually activates. And when you read her autobiography, you get the sense that she has very clear ideas around what she is about and how she's going to move. And she's unapologetic in a way that um, that is that sh that is beautiful and empowering, but should let us know that the black women have been moving in this way for decades, for centuries, for generations. So I come into the car, I'm listening to this, and because it's Ida B, I'm super psyched because it's Ida B. Wells Barnett. Like, she's one of my personal heroes. Um, and then, because I'm in the car, when I'm in the car, we get, I think, I think a day later, because of when I end up leaving another class, I happen upon a part of a conversation, uh, the, uh, you know, the half, halfway through for, uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And she is... Um, interviewing Dream Hampton. And the last week of February, because we're down to March, um, they re-aired the Surviving R. Kelly docuseries. And so this interview was kind of a way for Terry Gross to ask Dream Hampton questions around sort of how she put this together, why it was important for her to put this together. They had already had that first round of viewings and showings. And by the time we get around to this interview and this and what's coming to be the second showing on Lifetime, R. Kelly has been um, indicted. And I think at the time he was about to get arrested or he had been arrested when I was listening to this. So because of the way my brain works and because as a cultural architect, I'm always looking at connecting the dots. I felt that there was a connection between what I'd witnessed in the Steve Harvey, because eventually I would watch the whole thing, the Steve Harvey and Monique um, back and forth, and then this remembrance of Ida B. Wells Barnett, and then this work that the sisters do in Dream Hampton in pushing back against, you know, what's happening with R. Kelly. Keeping in mind that as part of the interview, uh, Terry Gross noted that at the same time, uh, Lifetime was re-broadcasting, uh, re-airing, uh, surviving R. Kelly, she had a documentary that was also going to be premiering on HBO where they chronicle her working with 11 inmates. So, you know, there was this interesting thing happening and it wouldn't leave me. So while I had planned to do something about specifically around my experience with this event, you know, when I am moved by something, I can tell when it needs to be done when I can't stop thinking about it when it invades like my day. So I kept coming back to this, what is, what's the connection? What, what's the dots? You know, why are, what is it about these three women, unseemingly Monique, Ida B. Wells Barnett and Dream Hampton? Like, why are these three women? Like, what is it about listening to these three stories or watching these three women in action in 
whatever form you we, it takes, whether we read their books or watch their work. Why am I so stuck on this? Because I knew that whether I liked it or not, I wasn't going to be able to move forward with any more episodes until I got this out. In fact, to be honest with you, I have been really stressed out about sharing these thoughts. I don't know why. So what I realized was that when I watched Monique and her exchange with Steve Harvey, there were moments where she has this look on her face that as a black woman, I think it's safe to say we've all, while we may not be able to identify specifically with her issue, that space of being talked at is something that a lot of black women, I think, can relate to. And there was this point in the in the exchange, and if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube, um, where she mentions, where she's trying to say her piece. She's trying to establish what it is that she's trying to do. And, and he, well, let me take a step back. He introduces her. And the way he introduces her, he introduces her in this kind of, under, it feels a little shady. And she picks up on it and she's like, and she, you know, jokingly, and with as much grace and confidence as one can muster, knowing that you're going in onto a show where, you know, this is his show, you know him personally, so you probably have a sense of what this is going to be about, but you still, you don't know what's going to happen. He basically is, and he's introducing her. She's like, you talk about me like I'm a problem. And he's like, you are a problem. And the way he said it, it was like, yo, he was being dead serious in that moment. And there is this, uh, there is this point, there's this very um, poignant part, like, I'm a, Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, I also think is something everybody should read. But he talks about blackness in the, um, in the forward, where he's trying to explain to the reader what it's like. And he gives examples, and he's like, it boils down to this ever unasked question, what does it feel like to be a problem? And I had already seen the exchange. I had already had conversations with folks about, you know, what what we saw and just just the way. Like it wasn't. I don't have a problem with you all disagreeing. I just have a problem with this idea that when she's trying to speak, this idea of if I just keep talking over her, then she'll shut up and I can be right. So that was hard to watch. But when she said, "You talk about me like I'm a problem," and he said, "You are." That stuck with me. And then when I come into this this piece of uh, reporting on Ida B. Wells Barnett, who her book essentially establishes statistics for two years on lynching, doesn't get an obituary when she dies. Like there is no public acknowledgement for her service. Um, she and Du Bois did not see eye to eye. In fact, you know, she's part of that original conference that establishes the NAACP. And one of the, and she talks about this in her autobiography about finding out about the formation of the NAACP in the paper. So there was not even a courtesy call to say, Hey girl, we're going to move forward because her thing was, she didn't feel that white people needed to be part of the leadership. She was like, I don't see why we need to do this. And, you know, there was this sense that you have to work with white people. And so I think she was seen then as a problem. Even being described as fiery, I think, suggests that oh, there's a problem. And when we think about that stereotype of the angry black woman and what that actually does to black women's voices, I was just 
And then I listened to the Dream Hampton interview and the weariness in her voice matched the weariness in the way that there was a moment where um, Monique has this look on her face and you can just see like she's so tired of people trying to tell her how she should react or tell her how she should think or try to talk her out of her truth. Like she's very clear. This is who I am. And here are people trying to tell her, you, yeah, you right. You do deserve to do what you, you do deserve these things, but you just don't need to go ahead and let that go. Because for this situation, we need you to just to walk this line. And so you have a Monique, you have an Ida B. Wells, you have a Dream Hampton, three women who are in a lot of ways refusing to walk that line, who are in a lot of ways saying, there's a truth that needs to be told and I'm going to tell it. I'm going to tell it my way whether you like it or not. If it makes you uncomfortable, not my problem. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm clear about what I need to do. And I'm also clear that, you know, I'm not perfect, but this is, this is a truth that I need to, to follow through with. Dream Hampton talks about, you know, being called anti-male, you know, some of the death threats and the fact that she had to now consider security in a way that she had never had to consider before, all because she decided to gather women who had had very um, clear experiences with R. Kelly, and they were brave enough to tell it on tape, and she was brave enough to capture it. She was being called all of these things. Her, you, could, you know, I remember catching a tweet that she had posted, because I was actually in Nigeria when when I think the series uh, aired. So I was seeing bits and pieces of the conversation, but I remember her saying in one tweet that her daughter is basically going to take her phone from her because, you know, she was too invested in the in the conversation that was happening on Twitter. And the reality is, is that she had to live through this taping and these women had to keep and had to relive their trauma. And so it just got me thinking about how much black women put forth in the in the space of community um, inform information, in terms of calling things out that aren't right, in terms of putting themselves on the line, because now that Monique has gone through what she's gone through, whether we acknowledge it now or not, she has changed the game in terms of how, in terms of how we will advocate for ourselves. Because for all of the talk that we had, myself included, I did not necessarily agree with a boycott for Netflix. I was like, what? I don't understand what's going on. Um, and when she talked about what happened with Oprah and Tyler Perry and Lee Daniels, I was like, yo, I'm with her. Like, I get that. Um, the, the Netflix thing, I think the way that that thing was presented was problematic just because it just, you know, and this is the one thing I agreed with when Steve Harvey said, you didn't have a plan. You just told people to boycott, but it was like, okay, until when, why? But she now has a Las Vegas residency. And so to be able to, to walk that path and hold her own, she has been rewarded in a way where she gets to continue doing what she wants to do, doing what she is meant to do. And I do think that while she has been, um, and I hate using the word blacklisted, while she has been um, curtailed in Hollywood because of certain people, I do think that there's going to be a come around. I do think in the next five or six years, we're going to see more of Monique on the screen, which I think is, which I think is good for all of us because I think she's very talented. But it, it made me think of Ida B. Because ultimately her sacrifice is that she leaves this world with no thank you, right? The, you know, 
no thank you, no acknowledgement of of what she's done because she's done it because she felt she needed to do it. Um, not because of course she wants to thank you, but we don't we don't honor this woman in the way that we should. And what I'm hoping is that for everyone, for all 26 of you who listen to this pod, this next episode, that you take some time and go research Ida B. Wells Barnett. Because we, we as black people in America, at the very least, owe this woman a debt of gratitude. Because she not only fights for black people in the time frame that she's born in, but she establishes very clear blueprint and proof that when it comes to black intellectuals, um, investigative reporting, um, community, social justice, you know, activism, that that history is long and deep. And that, you know, she didn't go to, you know, she didn't go study statistics at American University. She was like, look, I know these white people and their myths and their reasons for what they do. So I'm going to take my observations and put them and distill them down into empirical data to prove to you that what is happening is actually happening and that this is illegal based on our rights as citizens what is happening is absolutely illegal and i i just feel very strongly that this weariness with which black women sometimes have to operate in because of the importance of walking their path and telling the truth i i really am hoping that we can find a way to 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 mitigate that because Time and time again, history has shown us that black women show up for the community. And when we do, everyone does better. Like, you may have to get rid of your R. Kelly, but there's no denying what these women are saying. There's no denying that these things happen. And now we've seen this man has gone back to jail and well, has been arrested, you know, released and all of the things. And now we have a trial coming. You know, maybe this time around, you know, well, things will be done the right way. But Dream Hampton is partly responsible for that, you know, and, and not to take away from what the women have gone through, but in the sense of somebody had to galvanize all these stories into one place. So much like Ida B. Wells Barnett goes and she talks to these individuals and she galvanizes, she brings all of this information into, <coughs> excuse me, into one book. Dream Hampton has had to do the same thing and say, this is what's happening and I think it also is a testament across the board. When I look at, when I think about Monique and Ida B and, and uh, Dream Hampton, we have got to establish standards within the black community that have nothing to do with whiteness. Um, <coughs> thinking about the ways in which Ida B might've felt at being questioned at not wanting to have white leadership in the NAACP, knowing what she knows, knowing what she's seen. And this is a woman who wrote a book about the ways of white folks in the South. And then, you know, is, is referred to as difficult in some ways because she's like, I don't really think they need to be part of this. And so we, there's all kinds of lessons. You know, I, I invoke her name because I don't want, I use her in my class. I, I talk about her a lot. I get really excited when I think about Ida B. Wells Barnett and the work that she's done. And I'm sure that if I were to go back in time and meet her, I'd be like, yo, we probably, you know, would get along and I could probably see where in the way that she's moving, she's like, I have no time for naysayers and tentative folk. Like, are you in or are you out? Because this is a woman that successfully sued the train company when she bought a first class ticket um, from the north going to the south. And when they crossed the Mason-Dixon line, they asked all the black patrons to move to the to the colored section of the train. And she was like, nope, I bought a ticket. I'm going to stay here. And they put her off the train. And she sued them and she won. So this is a woman who, 
you know, took agency at a time where that just wasn't allowed of black people, let alone black women. And then when I think of, you know, what is, you know, where we are now with some of the things and just even the weariness that it takes to to continue with your truth, I I salute these women. You know, it's Women's History Month. So all these episodes you're going to get for this whole month are going to be about women. Um, and it just makes me it just that connection was just really important. And I wanted to share. So, yeah, thank you for listening. And now <laughs> to the ep gems, because, you know, I like to leave y'all with takeaways and things to do. So one of the first gems that I wanted to 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 put out there was celebrate a black woman in your life. I want, you know, whoever's listening, all 26 of you, shout out. Can you just black women in your immediate communities that are doing really good things, like take a day or take the rest of the month and just shout them out. If they need money raised, push their links out. If they are throwing an event, buy three or four tickets and gift them to people. Um, the Ida B. Wells Barnett should not have left this world getting a public obituary in the 21st century when she died in the 20th. Like that's not acceptable. And there are so many people in our communities that are doing this work, you know, unsupported, um, <laughs> under, under, under resourced, um, understaffed, and they're still managing to, to, to save lives and get things done. And so I say, shout those folks out. Um, that's gem number one. Gem number two is please go research Ida B. Wells Barnett. And while you're at it, check out Anna Julia Cooper, check out Maria Stewart, you know, Zora Neale Hurston already. And Marita Bonner is another favorite of mine. Um, go and see what these, because these women were writing some really important, um, were given some really important insights at a time where, as the country is coming back from having enslavement be the, 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 the topic of the day, they're coming back and saying, okay, now that we are trying to bring the black community together, we have some ideas on how to move forward. And a lot of it means you cannot treat black women in this sort of patriarchal second-class citizenship that white people do, because we don't have that history. Like we've been here with you, we have struggled with you, so you can't now tell us, okay, you go sit home and raise the babies and we'll get out here and do the work, because the bottom line is, is that if I had to bear the lash and protect and you know do whatever I needed to do to survive enslavement, then I'm equipped to help make sure that moving forward, the community um, flourishes. So that's number two, go research the folks that I mentioned. And then third, tell your stories. I don't care if it's a blog. I don't care if it's a podcast. Tell your stories. Link me to, you know, for those of you that have podcasts, like everybody who's favoriting me, if you have a podcast, I'm favoriting you. Um, I want to hear what you have to say. Link the stories to share your stories. Because the beauty of the time that we live in now is that we no longer have to wait for somebody to publish our stuff. I'm going to put this up. And you guys will get this information and, you know, no one can say that there wasn't a perspective on this. So shout out the black women in your life. Research the Blueprinters, the Ida B. Wells Barnett's, the Anna Julia Coopers, the Maria Stewart's, the Zora Neale Hurston's, the Marita Bonner's, and tell your story, share your story. And with that, I'm out because, you know, this culture ain't going to build itself. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you or you'll hear from me soon.
Thank you so much for listening to Cat's Corner, the podcast. To find out more, log on to www.lilsoso.com. That's L-I-L-S-O-S-O.com. You can also find me on social media at Cat's Corner Co. K-A-T-S-K-O-R-N-E-R-C-O. And that's for IG and Twitter. And then finally, you can check out my company, LSP underscore on the go. Same thing for IG and Twitter. Really appreciate your listening. Take care.